Y'all turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18, verses 18 and 19. And I want to start by asking you, what was your dream when you were little? When we're little kids, we have these dreams, these goals, these plans. When I was a little boy, I wanted to be an NFL quarterback. Y'all didn't laugh as hard as the first service. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. You're like, hey, I'm not, that's not supposed to be funny. So yeah, that was my dream. Um, didn't happen, in case you were wondering. Never really got close. But uh, every child has a dream. Every child has an ambition of some kind. No child wants to think, I'm just here. When Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart was born, his father was a composer in Salzburg, Austria. He was only three years old when he learned to play the piano. When he was five, he was already writing his own original compositions and playing concerts in front of the king. Makes you feel a little underachieving, doesn't it? He went on, of course, to be one of the great composers of all time. Ted Williams grew up as a neglected little boy in San Diego, California. He loved baseball, and he especially loved hitting. He studied hitters the way a broker studies the stock market. And his dream was, as he told people all the time, someday fathers are going to see me on the street and point to their sons and say, look, there goes Ted Williams, the greatest hitter who ever lived. And sure enough, he went on to hit better than anybody ever. He's the last man to this day to bat 400 for an entire season. Ernest Hemingway was the son of a doctor and a musician in Oak Park, Illinois. His mom wanted him to be a musician like her. She made him take cello lessons, which he hated. By the time he was 19, he'd already worked as a reporter and served in World War I, two experiences that helped make him one of the great novelists of the 20th century, probably the most famous American novelist of that century. Norma Jean Baker was born in Los Angeles. Her mother was severely mentally disturbed, so she was raised by a relative. And this woman, her guardian, was infatuated with Jean Harlow, Jean Harlow the, uh, the movie star. And so she dyed uh, young Norma Jean's hair blonde when she was a teenager and told her, you're going to be a movie star someday. Sure enough, when she was still in her teens, Norma Jean started appearing on magazine covers and soon changed her name to Marilyn Monroe. What do all these people have in common? They all achieved everything they dreamed of when they were children. And all of them, all of them, I'm sad to say, were bitterly unhappy people. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you hope for. Sometimes what you wish for the most may be the worst possible thing to get. See, God has a dream for your life. You may be young and, and idealistic. You may think, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to, I'm going to do something no one's ever done. I'm going to make a, a jillion dollars. I'm going to be on magazine covers. You may have ambition. You may be to the point in life where you think, I can barely remember when I used to have ambition. Either way, God has a dream for your life. And I think the best way to sum up a church's mission, what our church's mission should be, our church should exist to help you achieve God's dream for your life. That in this church, you would come to know Jesus Christ and through the power of His Holy Spirit and through our encouragement and prayers and support and equipping, you will grow into the image of Christ and become all that He created you to be. You'll fulfill His dreams for you and live a life that's worth living. We're in a series right now called Growing, and it's about achieving that dream, that goal. Now, God created us all for different purposes and, and with different skills and different, uh, different things we're set to do. We'll talk some about that in a moment. But with a very broad stroke, God's dream for all of us is, is, is alike in this sense. God wants us to grow into the image of His Son, Jesus. God wants all of us to take on the character that Jesus displayed in His earthly life. 
So we've looked at a series of, of different uh, characteristics that are mentioned in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians 5.25, this passage called the fruit of the Spirit. It, it lists qualities that should be evident in every person who's a true believer in Jesus because the Spirit is alive inside of you. And when the Spirit is alive, here's the fruit. It's love, it's joy, it's peace, and it's patience. I hope you had fun this week working on patience. I hope you had fun encouraging your loved ones to work on patience, right? But today we're going to talk about the next thing on the list, and that is goodness. God's dream for you and me is that we would be good. And now that may sound rather anticlimactic, and that's because we've sort of impoverished the word good in the English language in the 21st century. We've made it into a second-rate adjective. And I'll prove it to you. If you go to a restaurant today after lunch, notice if a waiter comes up to you and says, how's your food? If you say it's good, you'll know you don't mean it's great. It's outstanding. It's fantastic. It's delicious. It's the best thing I've ever had. It's awesome. It's amazing. You would have used one of those words. No, when you say it's good, what you mean is it'll do. I'm probably not going to send it back. I'll probably finish most of it but this is nothing I'm going to recommend to my friends. It's, it's good. It's okay. I want you to notice in our passage today, Jesus used that term very differently than we do. Je, uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 18 and 19. And this is a very, very brief exchange. Now you, I start here because it's hard to find a definition of goodness in the Bible. But here I think we see what Jesus was thinking about when he inspired that. It says, a certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. And you see what Jesus is doing there. Jesus is confounding the expectations of this ruler. When it says ruler, it doesn't mean a, a political ruler, but probably a synagogue official. Why do you call me good? You're just throwing that word around like it's nothing. Do you realize what it means? Do you realize what you're really saying about me? Do you mean what you're saying about me? See, in Jesus' mind, the word good was associated with God. And the only one that was truly good was God. So he's asking you, he's asking this ruler, are you really making a claim that I am divine? Because I want you to wrestle with that thought. For us today, and that's a, that's a question we do need to wrestle with, but for us today, what this says to us is that when Paul in Galatians 5 lists goodness as one of the fruit of the Spirit, what he's saying is, I want you to take on the character of God Himself. We can't become divine. We shouldn't even want to be divine. There is one God and He ain't you. But we should long for, we should strive for, we should thirst and hunger for the character of God to be seen in us. There's kind of a parallel passage. Jesus in Matthew 5.48 said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now let me tell you two things he doesn't mean when he says that. Goodness, righteousness, perfection, those are qualities that are basically synonymous in the text. Number one, it doesn't mean we can expect to be morally flawless. Don't ever claim that you're morally flawless. Don't ever say, I've reached a state of moral completion and perfection. That's not what he means. The Bible's quite clear. None of us is going to get there on this side of heaven. We're all sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says in Romans. John says in 1 John, if anyone claims they have not sinned, they make him a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. So we, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to sin. Secondly, it doesn't mean the kind of goodness, quote unquote, that a lot of people claim for themselves that's really 
not very admirable, the kind of goodness that's not attractive, the kind of goodness that doesn't bless anyone else. It's, it's the sort of thing where you'll say, yeah, he's, he's a really good person, but I really don't like him much. Mark Twain supposedly said, she's good, speaking of a religious acquaintance of his, she's good in the worst sense of the word. A little girl once prayed, Lord, please make all the bad people good and make all the good people nice. And she knew what she was praying, didn't she? There are people in our world, including religious people, who are very good at avoiding vice, but very bad at displaying love and humility. You can't find any outward sign of sin in them, but there's nothing about their lives that you want to emulate. That's not what we're talking about here. The best way I can sum up what the Bible teaches about righteousness, about perfection, about, about goodness, and becoming uh, spiritually complete and mature is it's measured not by the things you don't do, the thou shalt nots that you're able to obey. Those are important. But goodness is measured by the impact you make on others. See, God isn't God because He never sinned. God is God because He blesses the world. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let me tell you a story I read not long ago that kind of sums this up. In southwestern Nigeria, there's a region of that country, a very small region, that people have been calling for centuries the land of the twins. For some reason, that little area of Nigeria, southwestern Nigeria, produces more multiple births than anywhere else per capita on the face of the earth. And so, of course, scientists have been eager to study this. They've been trying to figure out why is it that we have so many twins born in this one area. The best theory anybody's come up with, the most plausible theory, is that there's a, a particular yam that is indigenous to that region. And the women there eat the yam, and the scientists believe maybe it stimulates their ovaries in such a way they're more likely to have multiple births. And right now, many of you are saying, I am not going to have sweet potato fries for lunch today. But they found out something else very interesting. As they were studying all of this, they discovered that although they, they saw that there, were, there was a high propensity of, of twin births in that region for, for decades, even centuries past, they also noticed that for a long, long time, most of those twins were killed by their own parents because it was believed in that culture that multiple births were a sign the gods were angry, the gods were up to some kind of mischief, it was an evil omen, maybe even a sign that the mother had been unfaithful. And so these kids were, were being, these infants were being killed, infanticide, over and over again. And then all of a sudden, in the late 1800s, that practice stopped. All of a sudden... People there started keeping their twins and raising them up to adulthood. And they wanted to determine why. What happened? And the only thing they could find was in the late 1800s, there was a, a little Scottish woman, a little Scottish Christian woman named Mary Slessor, who went to Nigeria, to that very region, with the goal of leading the people there to Christ. And she went village to village very simply and just shared the story of salvation, the gospel story. And many believed. And she was able to convince these people that they'd been wrong all these years. That twins, just like every other child that is ever conceived in the, in the body of a woman, every child is precious before God. Every child deserves to live. Now think about this for a moment. Mary Slessor was never on the cover of a magazine. She, she never hit 400 in the major leagues. She never composed any music that we still sing or, or perform today. She never wrote the great American novel. She never made a million dollars. In fact, if I had to bet, I'd bet she 
died penniless. And yet, and you probably never heard of her until a few minutes ago, and yet I say to you, Mary Slessor lived a good life. She lived the good life. A life that made a difference, a life that counted, a life that is celebrated to this day. She changed the world for good. There's untold numbers of people whose lives were spared because of her. There's untold numbers of people who are in heaven today because of her. Now, I am not saying, please hear me, I'm not saying you have to be a foreign missionary to live a good life. Although, I wouldn't be surprised if some people in here have that calling upon their hearts and end up going overseas and doing great things. But the key is this. What is your ambition? What is your goal and your dream for life? Maybe you gave up having a dream long ago. It's time to revive it. I think your goal should be to live a life that is truly good, a life that blesses others, a life that once you're gone, people can look back and say, thank God she was part of my life. Thank God he was my friend. She was my boss. He was my neighbor. She was my cousin, my spouse, my mom. That's the kind of life to live. And you might be saying to yourself, well, you don't understand. I'm not a good person. I'm really not. I'm not capable of making a difference in people's lives. You wouldn't want me to influence others. And you may say that, and you may think in your heart, well, at least I'm humble in saying that. No, that's not humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less often. You're not being humble. You're depreciating the grace and the power of Almighty God. So if you're one of those people who thinks the best thing I can possibly hope for is that I'll just sneak into heaven as, there, as the door is closing shut and I'll, I'll sneak in and be the last one there and, and, and God will just let me stay. If you're one of those people who thinks I'm no good or if you're one of those people who says I don't really have an ambition, I'm just here to make it to the next weekend, the next vacation, to retirement or whatever, the rest of this message is for you because I want to show you from Scripture you were created to live a good life, a life that others will celebrate, a life that will make a difference. Three things, three reasons why. Number one, you are made in the image of God. You might want to write these down, including the Scripture references, because there might come a day, if it hasn't come already, when you think you're no good. But you are made in the image of God. The very first chapter of the Bible, right out of the box, God makes it clear to us. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. You notice the repetition in those three sentences? It basically says the same thing three times in three different ways. I can't get away with that as a preacher. God can and the reason why is he wants to be very clear. He wants us to know, because he knows this is hard for us to grasp, that every single one of us is made in his image, male and female. If you're a man, if you're a woman, you're still made in his image. You are your father's child. Now, theologians wrestle and argue and debate over what that really means, but I'll tell you what it means at the very least. It means you are destined to follow in your father's footsteps. You are created for something great. In all of literature, we see this theme over and over again. The son or daughter who finds out at some point in life that he or she is destined for great things. Think about young Arthur 
who goes to his village and, and sees a sword and a stone that no one can pull out, and this little boy pulls the sword from the stone, finds out he's destined to be king. Or in the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn grows up raised by elves and then learns uh, later in life that he's destined to be the king of a great nation and overcome evil in, in the last days. Or in Star Wars, the little farm boy, Luke Skywalker, raised by his aunt and uncle, learns that his dad was one of the most powerful men in the universe and that he's destined to wield that power for good. Or in Harry Potter, this boy grows up and, and learns that his parents died to save his life and he's destined to overcome the forces of evil. He's the only one. The reason these stories resonate with us is because whether we will admit it or not, we want to believe the same about ourselves. We want to believe that I'm not just some random collection of atoms and DNA thrown into a blender and, and spilled out and into this person that lives for a few decades and then is gone and quickly forgotten. We want to believe that our lives matter. And the reason we want to believe that is it's true. You do matter. You are important. You're made in the image of your heavenly Father. Your life counts. One of the, one of the most beautiful psalms in the whole psalm, psalmody is, is Psalm 139. It says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. You know, now that we live in an age where we have ultrasound technology, you can actually watch this process take place. You watch a tiny fetus, at first the size of a grain of rice, and then it, that, that child grows and grows and, and develops more and more. The finger of God, the invisible hand of God is crafting that child. God is the only father who gets to personally design each one of his children. That means there's nothing about you that's an accident. Everything about you is, is designed by him. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And every day that you were going to live, God had in mind when he was designing you. He designed you for that purpose. He had a dream for you before you were ever born. You are made in the image of your Father. But not only that, number two, you are redeemed by the Son. Redeemed by the Son of God. Hopefully you all know. The most important story in the Bible, the most important story in history is that God's own Son came into the world in the form of a man named Jesus and lived the only perfect, morally flawless life that has ever been lived and then died an, unjust, an unjust death on a cross in Jerusalem and three days later rose from the dead. That's the story. That's the story that matters more than any other. That's the gospel and yet a lot of us have sort of cheapened it and said, okay, so what that means is if you believe in him and you ask him into your heart, you won't have to go to hell when you die. Now, was that sentence that I just said true? Absolutely, every, every word of it. But that's, that's just a minor part of the gospel. Jesus didn't just die to give you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus died to equip you for a destiny he died to prepare you and equip you and empower you to live out the destiny that, that God had in mind for you when he first made you. My favorite verse in the entire Bible, if anybody ever wants to know, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If you, if you stay in this church long enough, you'll hear me say it over and over again. Sorry about that. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I love that verse for so many reasons. That word handiwork 
Also, in some versions, it says masterpiece. It says, uh, it says his workmanship. It literally means work of art. Poema is the Greek word. God is designing you, even after you're born. And he's, being, he's designing you through the death and the resurrection of his son. You were created in Christ Jesus. So the day you say yes to the Father, the day you say yes to the Son, coming into your heart and saving your soul is the day you first become empowered to live out the plan God had in mind from you from the very beginning. Isn't that beautiful? Good works that He prepared in advance for you to do. And that happens when you say yes to God. When I was 15 years old, one summer, that, that 15th year, um, I said to my parents, listen, I, I'd like to go visit my Uncle Tim. Would that be okay? Now, my Uncle Tim was 10 years older than me, which meant when I was 7 and 8, he was 17 and 18. When you're 7 and 8, a 17, 18-year-old guy is the coolest thing on the world. He played on the football team. He drove a car. He had girlfriends. He was young. I just really admired my Uncle Tim. Well, now he was in his mid-20s. He was married to my Aunt Judith. They were living in Fort Worth where he was studying for the ministry. He was studying to be a pastor at, at Southwestern Seminary. All I knew was I didn't care about ministry. I had no plans for that. I just knew that I was bored and I hadn't seen my uncle in a while. So my parents put me on a Greyhound bus and shipped me off to Fort Worth for a week where I spent the entire time with my aunt and uncle and their friends who were all the same age, who were all studying for the ministry, and we didn't do anything exciting. They didn't have any money to take me out on the town. So we went to the park. We played touch football. We went to a lake and swam. We went to church. But at the end of the week, I said to myself on the bus ride home, you know, when I grow up and I get out of, when I get away from my hometown and out on my own, I'm going to make sure, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some friends like that. I'm going to have good Christian friends because those are good people. I want to be around those kinds of people the rest of my life. And so a couple of years later, when my parents dropped me off and drove away from me at the, at the front steps of Taub Hall at the campus of University of Houston, one of the very first things I did, I, I kept that promise to myself. I went to the Baptist Student Union building and I walked in and I said, hey, here I am. <laughs> I didn't know what else to do. And I made some friends there who turned out to be the first friends I'd ever had who were actually my age but took Jesus seriously. And it changed my life being around young people who were on the same quest. It, my faith exploded. It, it took off like it never had before. And then one day that freshman year, I met a young woman who I was very physically attracted to and then later on discovered she knew more about the Bible than anybody I'd ever met. And we got married. And then my life really changed for the better. You see, all of these great changes that eventually led to me answering God's call to go into the ministry and, and have brought me here today, a place I'm glad to be, a big part of that is because I spent a, a few days around a group of people who, aside from my aunt and uncle, I don't remember their names. They wouldn't remember me. I don't even remember anything they did or said. I just remember being around them made me think, I want what you have. I want to be the kind of adult you are when I'm an adult. Someday when I go up to them at heaven and say, thank you. Do you know the difference you've made in my life? They'll say, I don't even know who you are. And my point is this, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. You may think that some of those are, are big flashy things, donating a huge sum of money, writing a book, standing up and giving a testimony, 
leading someone to Christ. And that is in your destiny. Many of you will do things like that. Hallelujah. But many, many more of the great things you will accomplish will be things you don't even know about till you get to heaven. Because the truth is, there are people who you know right now and people who you will meet in the days to come who if you're letting the Holy Spirit lead, if you're allowing Jesus to have His way in your life, if your ambition is to live the good life, they're going to see in you something the world hasn't shown them before. That's going to give them a hunger and a thirst for what you have, and it's going to turn their lives around. And they're going to change, and through their change, they're going to change the lives of many others, and that change is going to ripple out and change the lives of, of millions to come. And you'll greet them in heaven, and they'll say, thank you for what you did. And you'll say, I don't even know who you are. And that's how good God is. But it's up to you to decide. Do I want to live the good life? I'm created in Christ Jesus for good works. Do I, want to, do, I want to, do I want to walk in those good works? Third reason you can live this way. Because you are being constantly transformed by the Holy Spirit. Not only are you made in the image of the Father, not only are you redeemed by the Son, but the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your life on the day you became a child of God, on the day you said yes to Christ. And he started this renovation process that is going to continue for the rest of your days. And it is the story of your life. It's the most exciting thing that's going on in your life right now or ever will. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I love that phrase. We're being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. What that means is, and some translations say, from glory to glory. What it means is every day you're growing to be a little bit more like Him. Every day that renovation process looks a little bit better than it did the day before. Read a story, a preacher wrote about his grandparents, how when they were newlyweds, this, this man and woman, they were very poor. They lived in, a, in an old house that the grandmother had grown up in, and it was a drafty old barn, and, and he knew, you know, if I really love my wife, I'm going to give her a new house someday, and he promised her, someday, honey, I'm going to get you a new house. So the day finally came when he said, listen, we're going to start construction tomorrow. He had bought a tract of land, and they were going to build a house on that property. She was very excited until she learned the truth. The truth was, yes, they were building a new house. Yes, in a new location. But the truth was, they were using the materials from the old house. So the new house ended up having the same creaky floors, same windows that wouldn't shut all the way. Looked pretty much the same. There was a fresh coat of paint. It was in a new location. There were a few other cosmetic changes. But for this woman, it was the disappointment of her life. She'd been promised a new house, and what she got was basically the same old place. As Christians, we come into the family of God, and Jesus says, you must be born again. It's not a, just a command, it's a promise that we'll be new people. And the sad truth is, there's a lot of people walking around calling themselves Christians, and the old them and the new them look pretty much the same. There's some cosmetic differences. Now you go to church. Now you sort of avoid certain vices, sort of certain dirty words you used to use. But just as selfish and just as angry, just as lacking in joy and love and peace. And I'm not saying you're not saved if that's the case. Only God knows the truth about that. But you're not enjoying the life that God sent His Son to bring you the life that the world needs to see in us. 
And it could very well be that some of you here this morning need to say to the Lord, Lord, there's never been a time when I really submitted to your transformation. I need for you to just tear my house down and start fresh, starting today. I know that's a risky thing to pray. But it could be the best decision you ever made. It could be that some of you would say, you know, there was a time when I know I was growing and I could see it happening and my friends were excited. And, but now, man, it's been a long time since I've really changed. Lord, can you restart this renovation process in my life? Because I need to get jump-started. I need for you to go to work on my heart again. Read an article several years ago about these two Algerian men who were crossing the Sahara Desert when their truck broke down. And they made a decision instead of trying to walk for help, which they thought they'd die within a day or two, they decided to dig a hole underneath the truck and wait in the shade, hoping someone would come by. And somebody eventually did and rescued them, but they'd been out there for three weeks. When you're out in the desert for three weeks, even under shade, you get awfully thirsty. These two men grew so thirsty, they actually drank the water that was stored in the, in the truck's radiator. And that's poison. So they survived, but their lives were drastically shortened. Their internal organs were, were in, irreparably damaged. And the point of the article, I think, because it was, it was in a Christian magazine, I was reading it, is that sometimes we thirst for the wrong things. We thirst for things that look like they'll help our thirst. They'll look like they'll quench what's inside of us, but they actually poison our souls. And, and I know there's nothing really wrong with, with desiring to be successful, with desiring to, to gain wealth. There's nothing wrong with wanting to achieve a certain level of success in life or a certain level of acclaim. That doesn't make you a bad person. It's certainly not wrong to want a happy family and, and children who you can love for the rest of your life. But I'm, I'm here to tell you, none of those things will quench your thirst. And in fact, if you make them into your main thing, they'll poison your soul. There's only one thing. There's only one living water. In the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 6, Jesus said this, and I want you to remember this if you remember nothing else. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. In the NIV it says filled, but the term means quenched, satisfied. Everything you've always wanted will be fulfilled if you desire more than anything else, righteousness. To be the person God created you to be. So today is a day to say, Lord, it's time for me to be ambitious again. Ambitious for the first time for the very right thing, which is to take on the character of your son, Jesus. Whoever you are, whatever your life has been up to this point, however long you think you're going to live from this point on, today I'm challenging you, I'm begging you to just say to the Lord, Lord, more than anything else, I want to be good. I want to make a difference. I want you to take possession of my heart and shape me into the character of Jesus so I can live the life you created me for, you redeemed me for, and you're rebuilding me for.